Good Sunday morning, Grace Trenton folks and friends in Dade County. Pastor Hutch here. It's good to be with you this morning and open God's Word together. Uh, you know, I mentioned this this week in my Wednesday Word of the Week, how Easter is not just one Sunday of the year, not just one day that we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. In the traditional church calendar, Easter is an entire season, a season that begins on Easter Sunday and spans the 50 days Following, And so we continue in this season where we are meditating on the implications and the truth and reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Now this is an interesting time and season in life to be talking about resurrection. We find ourselves in the midst of this new COVID-19 reality, this global pandemic that's disrupted life across the globe. Uh, we hear story after story of people who are suffering and sick. We are walking, even here in Dade County, through life with this fear of this unseen virus that seemingly in some ways feels like it's lurking around every corner. And so we find ourselves experiencing fear and anxiety and even wondering to ourselves, when will life go back to the way it was? Will it ever go back to the way that it was? And so we find ourselves in incredibly uncertain times. And then on top of all of that, a tornado rips through our community last Sunday night. And so we find ourselves in this reality where we're asking, what is going on? It feels like the whole world's getting turned upside down. And so the question for us is, how does the resurrection of Jesus speak into that, direct us forward in that, and give us hope? And that's what I want to talk about today. So we're going to be looking at Romans 8 again. We looked at that last week, and I want to pick up just a few verses down from where we stopped last week. I want to start in, verses, in verse 28 and go through 39. You should have heard that read but just before uh, we began with the sermon here, and I will be walking through a few of those verses. But let me just start off with saying that verse 28 has been one of the most meaningful verses in my entire life. It's one of the most incredible promises in the whole Bible, and it's actually a verse that I have turned to and actually clung to in some of the darkest seasons of my life. And the reason that this verse and this promise is so meaningful is because that it tells us that no matter what we're facing, no matter what circumstance, no matter what loss has come into our life, no matter what we're walking through, that in all of those things, God is sovereignly in control and working in those for the good of those who belong to Him, of those who love Him. And that is a tremendous promise. Let's look again at the verse. Let me just read it here for us. Verse, this is Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. It's a tremendous promise that in everything, no matter what we're facing, that God is using that and working in that circumstance, in fact, in some of the hardest things in our life, to bring about our good in all things all the time, no matter what you're facing. Now, it would be uh, easy to think that 
uh, a verse like this would promise that for those who love God, those who, which is just a synonym for a believer, a follower of Jesus, uh, that only good things are going to come into our life. And sometimes that is taught in Christian churches that if you love God and you're faithful to Him, then only good things and good blessings are going to come into your life. And that is not what Paul is saying here. In fact, we see in this particular passage that he's going to talk about uh, nakedness and famine and death and all of these uh, incredible, difficult realities of suffering. Paul, over and over and over in this book and in every book of the New Testament, is going to tell us to follow Jesus means we will share in His sufferings. So this verse is not saying that for followers of Jesus, just good things are going to come into your life. What he is saying is that in all things, whether good, whether bad, God is using those, sovereignly at work in those, for our good. No matter what we're facing, no matter if you're facing tornado or COVID-19 or cancer or the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or a battle with depression or anxiety. I mean, all things literally means all things, no matter what you're facing, no matter what dark season you're walking through in life, the promise here is that God is sovereignly at work in that for our good. That's a tremendous promise for believers. Now, the question here is, what is our good? Because the reality is, is that what I think is good for me and what God thinks is good for me are oftentimes going to be two very different things. What does He mean by our good? What is our good? And in order to understand that, we need to understand what is God's ultimate purpose for us. Because that's what that good is rooted in. And so to understand that, what does it mean that He's working all things for my good? We need to understand verses 29 and 30 because they unpack what that good is. You cannot read and understand verse 28 apart from 29 and 30 because they help us to see, okay, what is the ultimate purpose that God is working in my life? What is good according to God for me and in my life? And the reality is it might be very different than what we might think is good in our life. But it's essentially this as we look at verse 29 and 30. It is essentially God's ultimate purpose for our life is to make us like Jesus. That's our good. That's His ultimate purpose in our life. That's what He's working every detail and circumstance in my life. That's His will and His goal is to make me like Jesus. Look with me at verse 29. Here's what He says. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Now there's a lot of words and concepts in there. There's so much packed into this passage that we could take a look at. But essentially, let's just uh, talk about this word foreknew. To, to foreknow in Scripture does not mean that God knows something about you beforehand. It's not that God knows, okay, you're someone who's going to believe or going to choose Him or going to live in a particular way. 
foreknow in Scripture means God knew you beforehand. It's relational. It's, it's a synonym with saying being pre-loved. That is, before we ever existed, God had set His affections upon us. And everywhere that you see this word foreknow in Scripture, that is the sense. It is a relational knowing. It's not knowing about or knowing something that you were going to do, which is sometimes taught. So He foreknew us. He loved us before we ever loved Him. He loved us, in fact, before even the creation of the world. We see that in Ephesians 1. So those God foreknew, those He called, those he, who He has chosen, He has predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That, that is that God has set the destiny of His people from the beginning. He has a plan for their life. He has a destination for them. What is that ultimate purpose, that ultimate destiny for those who are in Christ? And it's this, that we be conformed and shaped and molded into the image of Jesus. That's God's ultimate purpose for us. That we be made like Jesus in the fullness and the beauty of His humanity, that we would become like Him in our character. You see, God's ultimate goal for us is transformation, that we would be changed in the deepest places of who we are, that we would become like Jesus in our dependence upon the Father, that we would become like Jesus in our love for other people, our putting the needs of other people above our own, that we would be those who would dis disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the community. That's, that's the picture of Jesus. That we would be people of truth and kindness and compassion and beauty like the very person of Jesus. That is, in fact, the reason that Jesus came. The reason that Jesus became a human being and came into our life and did all that He did is so that we who are broken and fallen because of sin might become like Him. In order that we might become all that we were intended to be as humans. See, when we look at Jesus, we are seeing the ultimate picture of what it means to be a human being in the fullness of life. And so as we think about resurrection, what we're seeing is a picture of our destiny as Jesus comes out of the tomb in the fullness of life, beaming with life and transformation in a transformed body. We're looking at our destiny. That's God's goal for our life, that we would fully flourish and give life as human beings in the same way that Jesus did. And so that is God's agenda and goal for our life, that we would become like Him. Now here's the good news that we see in this passage. The good news that we see in the passage is that that is not up to us. You know, as we look at our life and we look at the life of Jesus, the reality is we see a great disparity we see there is a tremendous need for change in our life, not only in, in how we live, but in the ways that we enter and do relationship with other people. We desperately need to change. But the incredible hope that we see in this passage is that change is not something we do. 
It's not something we accomplish. Rather, it is entirely the work of God. You see in verse 31 as he talks about all of these aspects of God's work of redemption in us, sorry, it's in verse 30, notice here in all five of these verbs the one performing the action is God Himself. Look again, verse 30. Those God predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. So here He's given a, a chain reaction of the work of redemption in us. This is a picture of salvation. And now notice with each one of these Verbs, the, the subject performing the action is God Himself. God is the one who rescues and saves and transforms. We, we don't add to that work in any way. We don't meet God halfway. We don't combine our work in His. The work of redemption, the work of salvation from beginning to end is entirely a work of God. It's entirely by His grace. It's nothing upon us. And that is so incredibly freeing. That's why the Christian life is not burdensome. Because it's not up to us to produce change and transformation. The reality is we can't. Because where change most needs to happen is not just simply in our behavior, but in our hearts. All of our behavior flows from the heart. And the reality is we cannot get our hands into the heart to bring about change. God Himself is the heart changer. And so when we see that here, that, that, that change and transformation is the work of God alone, it's incredibly freeing. It is not up to us. But there is something important to see. We do have a part to play. Though transformation is entirely and solely a work of God and by His grace, He involves us in that process of transformation. We're not entirely passive in the process of change and transformation in our life. We, he calls on us to participate with Him. He involves us in that. Now the question becomes, what is our role in that? What is our role in our sanctification, which is a word that Scripture uses for this process of actually being changed and made holy, made like Jesus. And now we see in the earlier part of chapter 8, he is talking about that process of change in our life and our role in it. And essentially how he describes it here is a dependence on the Holy Spirit. The role in the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring about this change in us. See, the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to take the work of Jesus that was accomplished through His life and death and resurrection and then to apply that work into our life. And so our role in that is one of dependence. It's, our role is that of, of opening ourselves to the work of Holy Spirit in our life. Our work is that of surrendering to His work in us. It's a matter of dependence, of faith, of relying upon Him. It's surrender. Now that is what makes it so difficult and so hard. Because surrender is so challenging. Because the reality is we want to remain in control. 
And so surrendering control is so incredibly difficult. Let me just demonstrate that personally from my life. Now here's the reality just personally in my life. When something hard comes into my life, when some disruption or difficult circumstance comes into my life, if I'm honest, so often I just want it to be changed. I just want a change in my circumstances. I'm not very interested in being changed on the inside. I mean, if I'm honest, so often I'm not saying in the midst of those, in the midst of pain or struggle or hardship, I'm not saying, hey, here's what I most want. I most want to be changed through this to become like Jesus. If I'm honest, that's not true. I just want the circumstances to be fixed. And when disruption and hardship comes into our life, we have a fundamental uh, question to answer, and a fundamental choice in that place. And here's what the choice is. The choice is, will I open myself to His work and agenda in my life, or will I seek to make life work in my own strategies and means? Will I open myself to what He wants to do in my life and His agenda and this, this agenda of change in my life? Or will I go into those old, familiar patterns of making life work apart from Him? And if I'm honest, so often that is what I choose. Because those strategies, those broken cisterns in our lives, those places that we run to make life work, to medicate, to uh, comfort pain. Those things are so familiar. They're so deeply rooted in us. And the idea of, of going to Him and open ourselves to change can feel so far away. And those familiar patterns and strategies are so very familiar to us. And so here's the question for us. Where do we get the motivation to actually open ourselves up to His agenda and His work in our life? Where do we get that motivation to surrender control to the transforming work of Holy Spirit in our life? And here's what I think is the key and the answer to that. We have got to see and trust that His heart for us is good. You see, we, we've got to be convinced in the, in the deepest places of our heart that, that His purposes and His heart for us is good. Because only then are we going to begin to trust Him and open ourselves to Him. Now, how do, we, how do we get there? How do we become convinced, not just in our heads, but deeply in our hearts, that His purposes, His heart for me is good? And I think that's where Paul takes us in verses 31 and following. What he begins to do in verse 31 is he's laid out the reality of our salvation and all that God has done to rescue us. He begins to flesh out the implications of that and to say, hey, if this, if this is true, if God has done that, here, here are the implications for you. And he goes through a series of questions where he just is kind of 
pressing the truth and the reality of the gospel into our hearts. And he says this in verse 31, what shall we say in response to this? What shall we say in response to this truth of all that God has accomplished for us and all that He is doing for us? And here's, what he, here's the question that he asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, the implication of that is that whenever I see the gospel, one of the most fundamental things that it tells me and tells my heart is that God is for us, deeply for us in every way. Do you believe that? That at the deepest places of His heart, God is for you. He is for your good and for your flourishing in every way. And if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? That's the logic that Paul is inviting us to flesh out here. He says this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? You see, Paul is saying, hey, think about it. So God gave up the most precious thing in His life, His one and only Son, for you. Now look at that. Do you think that He's going to give up His one and only Son? He's going to stop there? Paul's inviting us to see the overwhelming generosity of the heart of God for us. He says, you think He's, you think he's going to give you His Son and stop there? Will He not also give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? Is God who justifies? Who is He that condemns? If God is the one who has justified us in Christ, that is to declare us righteous in His sight, to give us the status of the righteousness of Jesus Himself in His sight so that there is no longer any condemnation for the Father for us. If that's true, then who can possibly condemn us? If God's justified us and we will never come under His condemnation, He stated that at the beginning of chapter 8, 8 8-1, then who can possibly condemn us? Who can accuse us? And then this last question that He wrestles with in the passage is can anything in all of creation separate us from the love of God? Can anything in, in the present or the future, any powers or authorities or, or human realities or circumstances, you know, the conclusion that Paul comes to here at the end is that nothing in all of creation, including ourselves, can separate us from the love of God for us in Jesus. You see, when our heart begins to be convinced of that, we can begin to open ourselves to His work in our life. You see, when we see that His heart is for us, that He is utterly committed to us, that, that He has given us all things and will give us all things in Jesus, we can begin to open our heart to His purposes in our life, even in the hard circumstances of our life. Because we begin to see through that lens of the gospel that God's purpose for me is flourishing, is resurrection life, the life of Jesus being realized in me progressively in this life. When I see that, I begin to open myself to His purposes of transformation in me. 
I want to close with a, a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think powerfully opens up our understanding of how what God wants for us is so much larger than even what we often want for ourselves. But here's what C.S. Lewis says here. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. See, I think so often what we think that God's agenda is for our life is that He just wants to uh, prevent us from having fun, that God's some, some kind of a killjoy, that if something is, is delightful and good and joyful in life, then there must be something wrong with it. And that, that God's agenda for my life is, is that I desire less, that the problem is desire. And the, the point that he's making here is, no, 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 no. The reality is, is that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's a great statement of what we see in our passage. You see, what God wants to invite us into, in fact, His agenda and purposes in our life is a fullness of life. It's a flourishing. And what, what He's inviting us to as His people is that we would be satisfied with nothing less than the fullness of glory that He wants to bring us into. The, the, the fullness of resurrection life that is ours in Jesus and that He is bringing about through His work in every detail of our life. So, my invitation to us in the midst of all that we're walking through is would we be a people that would begin to trust His heart even in the midst of our circumstances and that we would surrender and open our hearts to His work of redemption bringing life and growth and fullness in us. I invite us to do that. Let's, let me pray for us now. Lord Jesus, the reality is so often we wish that your agenda for our life was so much smaller, that we are far too easily pleased, that our hopes even for ourselves and ourselves are so very small. But Father, I praise you that, that your uh, plan for us, your ultimate plan, uh, your ultimate purpose for us is fullness of resurrection life. Would you help us to trust your heart and begin to open our hearts to your agenda and work of redemption in us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.